Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest place on the planet. Uh, today is a new episode of the Sense of the Arctic mini-series, where Inge and Nicolas are interviewing a researcher from Siberia, and they are going to discuss the ongoing conflicts in between Russia and Ukraine, and how it affects researcher life and especially also life in um, Siberian communities. A very interesting episode and I wish you a very good listening. Hi everyone, welcome to the fifth episode of Sense of the Arctic, a special series of conversations organized by the Apex Science and Diplomacy project group and released as part of the Apex podcast Polar Times. My name is Inga Deschepper and I'm a PhD candidate at Université Laval doing my research in biogeochemical modeling in the ocean and sea ice in the Arctic. And I'm Nicholas Parlato. I'm a settler scholar from Baltimore, Maryland, the lands of the Nanticoke people, and I'm currently a PhD student at uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks studying marine and coastal resource management and politics. So as we've heard from the past four episodes, community-driven research is essential for the success of contemporary interdisciplinary Arctic science. We will now hear a bit from the Siberian Arctic perspective on community-based and community-driven research. Our guest today is a research professor at George Washington University. Dr. Vera Kuklina is a Buryat scholar from Ust-Ordinsky Buryat Autonomous Okrug, now part of the Irkutsk region of Siberia and has done work across a wide range of topics, including Arctic infrastructure, transport, and urbanization, as well as indigenous resource management and resilience. Her recent forays into community-based observing have centered around the interactions of infrastructure, wildfire, and boreal forests. We're really excited to have Dr. Kuklina here and to learn more about her research and what community-driven work looks like in Siberia. So Dr. Kuklina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nicholas and Inge, for hosting me. It's a real honor to be part of your program and participate in this conversation. And uh, yeah, I already mentioned to you informally that I have listened to your previous podcasts and they are very informative and very important for next generation of uh, young scholars working in the Arctic. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to add a little bit about myself that, um, yeah, coming from Russia, I live in U.S. for 10 years and uh, moved here for personal reasons, just got married, and then I was uh, started to look for uh, employment and what I could do here, and then uh, I was lucky to have uh, George Washington University hosting me first as visiting scholar, and then I applied for projects. Uh, and uh, yeah, in 2019, my first project was funded, and then I started to work with uh, colleagues here. But also I kept my affiliation in Russia. I was working in the Institute of Geography. It's Siberian branch of Russian Academy of Sciences located in Irkutsk. And I was uh, affiliated with the institute, working with my colleagues up till summer of 2022. So, yeah, yeah, it was very long cooperation. But unfortunately, with uh, invasion in Ukraine, we had to stop all our field work in Russia. And we tried to keep uh, connections with our scholars. And uh, then with sanctions, we couldn't even pay to our consultants anymore. And then, yeah, decided to keep informal collaborations, keep connections. We still have uh, a lot in common. We are trying to write papers together and sometimes have some uh, phone calls, uh, other meetings uh, online. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be on hold probably for a while. But I find it very important to keep these connections because it's uh, 
quite, I would say it's impossible probably to study Arctic if you don't know uh, anything about Russia, which is more than half of the Arctic. And uh, it's not only people, but also environment, which uh, affects uh, everything around the Arctic, and especially for indigenous people who haven't been, you know, uh, consented to participate in the war. Nobody ever asked the opinion what how they should proceed with it and uh, now uh, disproportionately affected by war and I think you need uh, everybody needs to keep it in mind when thinking about Russia and about people who still are part of Russia yeah thanks for sharing all that to start Vera and I know Inga Inga's technically assigned the first question but because you kind of answered it I I, I wanted to um, maybe pivoted a little bit, which is like in the wake of the the conflict, um, has your work, have you started to work with or turn your gaze to other communities that are more accessible from the United States? Do you, have you started to think about work in Canada or in Alaska, Greenland? Did, and, and has that been part of your work before? Has this driven a kind of shift in, in the geographic regions of the Arctic that you feel comfortable working in right now? Yes. So, yeah, uh, it, it is true that we started to explore possibilities of working in other uh, countries. And uh, uh, I lead two projects uh, as a principal investigator and then uh, have uh, another project where I'm co-principal investigator and one where I'm uh, senior personnel. But they all were focused on studies in Russia for me. And with uh, these changes, uh, we had to think about uh, what what to do next. I was waiting for quite a while, uh, thinking that uh, the war will end in a month, in two months. But now I'm not even sure if uh, when it will happen. Uh, I still, I'm still hopeful that we will be able to come back to Russia. Uh, but at the same time, I understand that funding agencies have their own agenda. I'm working uh, with support of National Science Foundation. Although they have um, uh, no cost extension, they cannot extend projects for years and years. So <laughs> we wish they could, but unfortunately, they can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. First, it was yeah, you know. There was COVID, and we still remember the effects of COVID when we had to extend our project because of COVID, because we couldn't travel. But then this, uh, the next hit was even worse. And I know that it's worse for people who are affected directly by war, but still for our research community, it is very uh, also unfortunate that we have to deal with these issues and we have a lot of colleagues who depend on projects no and myself depend on projects because i'm on soft contract and all my salary is coming from grants so yeah uh, one of the projects uh, that i need uh, it's almost finished it's called informal roads uh, we study uh, unofficial transportation infrastructure uh, we originally studied it in uh, siberia but the last summer, we went to Mongolia, Duha and Darhat communities in the north of Mongolia. It's Hofsgol Aymak. And uh, Duha communities are very similar with um, our indigenous communities in Siberia. And in fact, uh, looks like they are even relatives. And uh, they just have different names in different countries, but still keeping all these cultural relations, languages, and uh, very, very preserved uh, lifestyles. It was really interesting to, to see so many similarities and uh, to work with them. And I'm, uh, I'm very happy that they uh, accepted us with all their hospitality and uh, I myself, as uh, Nicholas already said, Buryat. 
score. So it means that uh, our language is belonging to Mongolian group of languages, uh, which means something like 70-ish percent uh, of vocabulary will be the same with Mongolian language. So I'm learning Mongolian now and uh, able to uh, keep regular conversations and hopefully we'll be able to engage even more in conversations uh, this summer when we plan to come back to these communities. So, yeah, yeah, yes, both Doha and Arhat communities mostly speak Mongolian language right now. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, climatic conditions, environmental conditions are quite similar with Siberia. So there's a lot to to learn from communities and from environment and uh, continue our research. And as for another project, uh, we had studied Arctic cities, open public spaces in Arctic cities. Mostly I was focusing on Nadim and Apatiti in Russia. But the last summer I went to Fairbanks first time. And we, we were planning to do some kind of uh, compare, comparative work there, but now we are moving <laughs> how to say, more closely to, to study. But in fact, yeah, it's still interesting that despite all these differences in systems of governance and cultures and a lot of differences, there are some similarities. That's wonderful. That's actually really interesting. And I, I guess it's... Um, I guess uh, one thing that we we noticed when looking into some of your past research is that um, a, a big part of your your research on infrastructure and roads was very theoretically driven, and it's m- moved into a more case study driven field, um, with incre- increasing involvement with uh, indigenous uh, communities and local communities. Um, could you possibly talk about how you understand? your own research trajectory and why you chose to actually increase community um, involvement in your research? Um, I always thought that I'm kind of (laughs) case-driven, in fact, uh, because even my first paper that exists in Russian language was about Buryat traditions, and uh, I wrote this paper when I was a student, uh, just talking to my grandmother. And then uh, I wrote an essay based on this conversation, brought to my uh, professor at the university. And uh, he didn't know what to do with this essay. So he took it to his scientific advisor who was working at the Institute of Geography and that uh, researcher, uh, Byron Mustafovich Shmuratov, uh, became my scientific advisor. Uh, he invited me to institute to study uh, in aspirantura, like post, uh, I don't know, uh, graduate, uh, postgraduate, so post, postdoc research. Yeah, so, yeah, he said that it's great, I have great style, and uh, we need to publish it. <laughs> so that's how we started our country, uh, work together with him. He was uh, very uh, helpful and uh, supportive. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he, he said that it's very important to uh, study traditional cultures, indigenous people, and uh, that it's what uh, the geographical field is missing right now. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it was trying to calculate how many years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> so you kind of found your way into geography by writing a very strongly ethnographic essay with with your grandmother, essentially co- co-writing it with her, and then you made your way into the geographic department and started kind of finding your academic uh, foundations there. Yes, that's true. Uh, I think uh, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm very grateful for my uh, upbringing, mostly by my grandmother, who always was uh, talking with me about uh, Buryat traditions. He didn't speak Russian, and um, 
yeah, it was very important for me to appreciate uh, all these differences. Background professional upbringing is usually more, uh, you know, dominant culture. But then we have all these values and ethics that are kind of providing us support with other fields of life. I think it's very important. Yeah. So I guess to clear, to to kind of build on Inga's question, since it sounds like you've always felt like kind of case study and like ethnography to a degree has been has been your methodological approach. Um, has there been a trajectory because Arctic research at large has changed very dramatically in the last 15 years or so. And and I know that your timeline's a bit shorter than that, but I feel like um, especially kind of traditional forms of anthropology and cultural study have shifted to start thinking much more about, um, you know, actual impacts of climate change to communities, to think about uh, inequities in social systems, uh, to try to uh, especially increase the amount of um, engagement with communities uh, from the outset of research, and actually using research as a tool to support just community well-being uplifting indigenous knowledge and things like that. Do you see your own research trajectory and like how your scholarship has changed falling into that, that kind of similar um, arc or, or do you feel like you've kind of had a consistent uh, approach to research? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, um, I consider myself as geographer. So uh, I yeah I work a lot with anthropologists, but I think now anthropology is moving closer to geography than <laughs> you know uh, it was before. No, and in general, all this interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary studies are developing, and it's great because it really can address uh, more complex issues than uh, just anthropology itself or just geography. But in Russia, there is also a little bit different um, trajectory. And I think in 1990s, uh, it was very interesting time when uh, indigenous people had more opportunities for, for self-determination, for cultural revival. And that uh, time was important for our institute that it started to help uh, indigenous people. In our case, uh, we talk about Evenki people in Irkutsk region. The institute started to help them uh, create territories of traditional nature use management but I know that this translation is not very correct, and Nicholas is expert in this field. He can talk more about it even than I probably. But uh, I think the real intentions behind creating those territories was really to provide territory protected from industrial development for indigenous people. And uh, the areas were quite big. I remember, for example, I was working with uh, my uh, scientific advisor with a community in uh, the north of Irkutsk region, and the territory was almost half of the territory of the district. And uh, it's something like uh, thousands and thousands of square kilometers. It's quite big for communities that was... uh, I can't remember how many people now, but yeah, the, the whole population of Evenki community in the district was something like 500 people. Enough uh, space for, for conducting the traditional subsistence activities for hunting, reindeer herding, gathering. So I, I thought that it was uh, interesting collaboration and that uh, the uh, Evenki people from Abshinas, the uh, Abshinas communities who uh, are units, economic cultural units uh, that are officially uh, uh, entitled to conduct traditional use, probably because it more. Yeah. Defining options mm-hmm. is super important just because that's such a different institutional context. Yeah, no, so it's officially recognized organizations that uh, 
focused on contacting traditional lifestyles. Probably that would be more appropriate to say Abshinas. So, yeah, working with these Abshinas uh, was a very kind of alliance, especially when the extractive industrial development started. So Abshinas considered our institute as an ally, as their collaborator, as a partner who were uh, fighting together against companies to protect the land, environment, and because uh, issues of environmental concerns and cultural concerns uh, have uh, coincided in that case. So uh, I wouldn't say that there was difference between what was community studies and uh, geographical studies in this case. And it was not only in the 90s, it uh, kept uh, developing in early 2000s. And uh, maybe you heard there was uh, the project to build oil pipeline near the Baikal shore. And uh, again, indigenous peoples, environmental organizations, our institute, all together were working to develop some plans, strategies, how to move this pipeline from the Baikal further, unfortunately, to uh, lands of other indigenous people, of Saha people. But um, for, for the Lake Baikal, it would be impossible to, to uh, save Baikal if the pipeline was built next to it, because it's very seismic area and uh, you know, it's UNESCO heritage, and uh, it would be just disaster, global scale disaster if it was built there. So, yeah, that, uh, this uh, collaboration between researchers, environmentalists, and uh, indigenous organizations was, was quite well established in our region, and I think that we need to keep it in mind that there is nuance of how... Uh, researchers and communities work together. I, I find it's wonderful that you say that it's it's been since the the nineteen nineteen nineties that there's been collaboration between communities and researchers and environmentalists to protect the the natural environment and the communities itself from the past uh, podcasts it's it's only been the last as nicholas also said like the last 10 15 years where the communities have really been involved or asked to be involved in research or uh, even policy making and things like that so i find it's, re- it's really interesting that russia's and the siberian arctic has been it's been busy with it already for 30, 30 years, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, yeah, and uh, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about how uh, the community's contribution um, of knowledge uh, to some of your projects, such as Frozen Commons and Informal Roads, has um, shaped your projects. It's like their input, their um, their voices, how it's it's helped to to shape your your research, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, also need to mention that it's a little bit more complicated story about communities and researchers, even in another in sense, that collaboration, maybe not collaboration, I don't know, even know how to, to say it, but uh, that during the Soviet time, uh, there was a policy to see called colonization, uh, maybe indigenization uh, of uh, indigenous elites, uh, indigenous peoples. No, not only elites, uh, that uh, there was policy to provide education, healthcare, infrastructure to even remote communities and that a lot of indigenous peoples used that opportunity to get education, to become leaders and uh, to to participate in decision-making and uh, 
policy making and um, that uh, there are prominent indigenous scholars who uh, will, uh, have been working in the in science you would say uh, for for many many decades so it's not like uh, last 30 years it's a little bit longer history and even before probably it's also different from us that uh, even during the Tsarist time, what was, for example, in my Buryat history, that uh, the research was conducted, of course, it was conducted mostly by Russians or by people who were exiled. Yeah, it's even more complicated history because uh, some Polish or uh, other, like, Decembrist, uh, some uh, nobility people were sent to Siberia even against their will, but then they started to work there, to conduct some research, and worked together with uh, local and indigenous communities. And uh, some members of communities, uh, they also were able to obtain education, become researchers, get higher positions in society, and also affecting decision-making. And yeah, I was in St. Petersburg, there is a Buddhist temple where Buryat nobility were practicing religion since <laughs> for, for, for centuries. <laughs> I, I used to attend that Datsan. I, I went to that Datsan for many months while I was living in St. Petersburg and uh, <laughs> going to regular services. But Vera, your point is very well taken that, you know, the whole history of the Soviet Union and their relationship to uh, the diverse nationalities of the country is just dramatically different from the segregationist and kind of formal genocidal uh, policies of the United States and Canada that that really sought more to erase rather than to embrace this, uh, you know, brotherhood of nationalities. And so it's but obviously under a totalitarian government, you also had, you know, negative things and there was russification and there was sedentarization, but also lots of programs for supporting hunting, fishing, trapping um, people. So, so it is a comp, I, I totally um, think that that context we need to have right up front um, because like the movements in the eighties for in, um, indigenous rights, for the rights of the small numbered peoples in Russia was uh, not just, it was driven by indigenous peoples, but it had a lot of allies outside of indigenous communities. Um, and so that's why I think in the 90s, there was so much success in terms of getting legislation and pushing for um, territorial and cultural protections. So it's, it is, it's interesting how, you know, Western perceptions of Russia are very skewed often because like that history is... Um, you know, it doesn't speak to the evil empire, right? <laughs> and it's not publicized. It's not, it's not, people don't really speak about it. It's, it's for me, I'm learning so much, <laughs> so, so much right now. And, um, but it's, it's something that if we didn't do this, I wouldn't have known about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think Vera Yuri Slyoskin is is probably he was my introduction into all of this. And so, for any of our listeners, if you are interested in the history of uh, of uh, indigenous peoples in Russia throughout the Soviet, even pre-Soviet in the imperial era as well, I think uh, Arctic Mirrors is a really excellent introduction to it. Yes, that's true. Uh, I love that book. And uh, yeah, I don't want to say that uh, Russia was ideal country or Soviet Union was ideal. Of course, with gulag camps, with uh, boarding schools and a lot of tragedies with repressions. It's, uh, yeah, it's very important to keep in mind that, it, yeah, there were a lot of dark pages in the history, but also there were some practices, some strategies to to tactics to to preserve cultures to resist uh, colonization and assimilation and uh, i think uh, the the fact that i still speak my uh, native language is one of uh, the proofs that it was possible despite uh, all these difficult conditions and uh, yeah that may, maybe 
because yeah, it's such a big country. It's just it wouldn't be even possible <laughs> to, you know. to summarize it all into yeah. There's there's so much yeah, and it's absolutely fascinating. We could have you here for hours uh, if you <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah I didn't even notice how time flies. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're doing good. Um, but. I want to go back to Inga's question because this is where our podcast kind of, you know, kind of grounds itself and finds its niche is in this area of collab- contemporary collaborations between researchers and indigenous communities um, and the ways that that, you know, either um, tries to leverage the fact that indigenous peoples are living on the land. They are, they, in many cases, obviously there's also urban indigenous peoples and the, and it's a complex landscape, but uh, just that they are seeing changes that they're the kinds of knowledge that they have developed over, you know, centuries of living in place are really important for our collective understanding of the way that the planet and human livelihoods are changing. And so we talk about we talked with Nor Johnson about the development of community-based monitoring as a um, paradigm, and then there's also this notion of community-driven monitoring. And I know from reading some of her publications that there have been initiatives like that to gather environmental data um, in collaboration with scientists and indigenous communities across Russia. And I was. I think our question is kind of like what what are like the kind of what's the language and the practice of those types of initiatives in Russia um, because I you know they they look very different I would imagine than they do here in terms of the tools being used the um, the ways that communities are approached from the outset to participate in these things or if they initiate it on their own I was wondering if you could speak to us, especially in Buryatia and maybe in the Saha Republic, or if you know about like things happening in the Komi Republic or anywhere else where there are these grassroots kind of initiatives to um, gather environmental information for the community with with community knowledge in order to use that for um, self-determination or any other kinds of purposes. Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, and in fact, I could uh, send you some links that, uh, yeah, it's also <laughs> a little bit related to what I was talking before, that uh, there is a lot of uh, indigenous scholars in Russia uh, who are really uh, involved in a community, in the communities-based research. And uh, it takes a little bit different forms than in Alaska. Uh, for example, no, yeah, it's maybe even more f- kind of formalized, you would say, because uh, differences in languages, they were studied scrupulously by ethnographers. Of course, it was knowledge extraction, but uh, the fact that indigenous scholars participated in that uh, knowledge extraction, they were also able to influence the direction of research, and they were able to to use it for benefits of communities in some uh, extent. And the creation of territories of traditional land use is maybe one of examples when they... uh, in some kind of form, we were able to protect the rights for land use and uh, um, preserving cultures. Another way is uh, ethnological expertise. So it's also a kind of gathering of information to, to again, to protect rights of indigenous peoples. Yeah, in, I think that's often translated into English as ethnologic impact assessment or uh, something yes. like that, or cultural impact assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that uh, it's kind of, yeah, I wouldn't say that there are some, uh, uh, and of course there are some there are small initiatives, local initiatives, when, um, for example, when I was a uh, uh, school kid, we would uh, just you know, keep our notes. How weather is changing? What is changing? And uh, how what is snow when is coming? What the trees are going to uh, vegetate? All that those little things. And uh, of course, we have uh, pro- probably here <laughs> talking more to my personal experience that we had uh, kind of our own. Uh, notions of the seasons 
and uh, it's whereas informal and formal knowledge that is more local and uh, nobody would bother to publish it because it's very locally specific and people who want to use that knowledge they live in the village so they don't need to tell to some ethnographers what what's going on because it's their own kind of knowledge used for local community based on local or long-term observations stories and everything so probably it's a little yeah different uh, i'm not sure maybe it's not exactly what you expected me to say <laughs> but yeah when i uh, contacted uh, when i started to do research on informal roads it was uh, trans probably i would say that it is kind of translation of local knowledge to a more western global or whatever uh, which is not for local use that uh, i just uh, heard a lot about uh, in fact it was interesting that i, I started to that project based on the cultural impact assessment that we conducted for uh, communities to uh, protect against pipeline construction. But then they were uh, mentioning this informal, uh, 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 this profile, seismic line clearings, that they were more important for them than real roads, uh, official roads. And um, I was just curious how uh, these roads, how, how many of these roads exist and uh, what is the uh, impact on mobility because it looked like there is some impact. So uh, and, uh, together with my colleagues, geographers, we started just to, to map those roads and then realize the extent of how it's huge, huge phenomenon that is affecting uh, everything environment, mobilities, uh, and even wildfires. So that our papers became more based on what people see and then how, what, what data we can uh, get from uh, other sources, from the satellite images, for example, in our case of informal roads, and then to, to, you know, to supplement different sources of information to create bigger picture. And yeah, I think it is very important. And it was the way how we started to think about other issues and about, yeah, it's like layers and layers and frozen comments is probably, it's also related to that, but just going to another layer of gathering and accumulating information and starting to work with different experts because, you know, when you talk to Hunter, he provides you information, which is, related to hydrology, to climate science, to permafrost science, and then to, to really understand what, what his know, uh, the knowledge uh, entails for different sciences. You really need to bring those scientists and start asking them questions and then just to understand how this, the whole complex social-ecological system works. And uh, yeah, I think probably that's my idea how knowledge co-production should be that you talk to communities and then based on questions and concerns that they have, you take it to scientists and that science will be not only for the, themselves, but for benefiting communities. And that <laughs> currently I'm started, I started to uh, bring artists because and especially now in U.S. context, because of correct translation, sometimes you don't have enough words. You need emotions, you need images, and you need somebody who can do it better than myself. <laughs> these translations. You know, thinking about these informal roads and the fact that informal roads are probably a product of a kind of informal 
economy and an informal political economy in Russia because of the ways that companies are not monitored to the same degree and they have a lot more freedom, you could call it, um, to you know begin their operations without the law um, being being brought to play. And, and we have some things like that here, and I'm on a project where we're probably going to be um, empowering community members to document informal um, kind of uh, wastefulness in fisheries. Um, so like when they're out fishing on a, on a river, they'll see people who are just sport fishers or recreational fishers, like just throwing out, you know, fish or not, not processing them correctly. And so I'm, uh, it's interesting to think about that this community knowledge that is um, obviously circulating and used within communities and across communities, but isn't necessarily known by by folks outside. It's not just environmental information, but it's about the kind of clandestine activities of other kinds of resource users, you know, potentially poachers or, you know, uh, resource development agencies. And so I guess I'm, I'm interested in, um, how your projects kind of deal with both of those kinds of information to like both understand the human driven changes, the the kind of direct human driven changes on the landscape, as well as understanding shifting ecosystems and shifting uh, climatic conditions. And like how it sounds like those two even have a relationship to the, the, what you might call the activist portion of the scholarship that you do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for, for bringing that up. In fact, yeah, it is very closely related. And uh, she didn't publish that paper, but she should have. Um, she presented it at the conferences. Natasha Krasnostanova, she is my colleague in Irkutsk. And she just um, calculated how many crossings uh, these informal roads have with rivers and how this affects water quality and fishing resources because it is really a very closely related phenomena yeah, there will be uh, some anglers who would come to, to the rivers because now they have access with these roads and they will overfish and they will overhunt and uh, also they will throw uh, cigarette butts and start fires. So th- th- ah, there are at least two papers that we're supposed to write. One is about fishing, yeah, and uh, she's yeah, providing information how many of these crossings they have with rivers. And then there is uh, there are already published papers about uh, wildfires. So we calculated, uh, m- my colleagues, of course, not me, calculated how many uh, fires started near roads that we heard concerns, uh, complaints of communities that fires are started not by lightning, as usually people, uh, you know, agency would say, but by people who just have access to the territory now and they just drive by and uh, accidentally start fires. And yeah, it was very, very, very big uh, correlation between ignition and roads. Yeah, so, um, yeah. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's kind of almost like investigative journalism. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> it's like in a, in a country where journalism struggles, the academics fill in uh, mm-hmm. under the banner of science, fill in a little bit of that gap. Yeah, no, from one side we have uh, scientific questions. How do roads are related to wildfires? But then we can really point out that wildfires start near forestry roads, for example. And which means that maybe somehow these forestry companies and their workers are supposed to be controlled, monitored to prevent these wildfire ignitions. Mm -hmm. While, uh, yeah, oil companies also, they are really harmful and uh, all the issues related to oil extraction they still monitor their roads, they monitor vehicles moving on those roads, and the amount of wildfires started near the oil roads less than near forest roads. So this kind of differences in policy, uh, policies that different companies have, and uh, that using remote sensing, we can prove that these concerns of local communities that may be disregarded in our con- uh, in other contexts can be really taken into account be, be 
as supplemented by the facts that it's already difficult to deny. Yeah, it's interesting, and I, I'm, I want to turn it over to Inga in a second, but just that, um, especially in the in the at least up here in Alaska, actually, and there there are a really good number of scholars up here who see themselves as like allies and in a kind of like scholar activist position in terms of using the science to really support community claims uh, and to try to shift the the policy landscape and shift the the regulatory landscape. But there's also a very strong sense that co-production of knowledge is almost like a different thing. It's still the co-production of knowledge is um, something that's almost entirely intellectual. And it's about just, you know, kind of accepting and and conveying um, different types, different ways of knowing, but like not necessarily that that activistic portion of it. And so it's interesting. And and maybe that word isn't, isn't the best word because it conjures up political bias and things like that. But I feel like the way you've described co-production in Russia is actually like in a way the ideal for what co-production is supposed to be um, because it's about a true, like a true alliance of creating information that is useful and valuable um, and following through on that and making sure that that valuable information reaches the different areas of society that it needs to. So I just wanted to think about, you know, co-production being a, um, you know, a term that that has different applications or different manifestations all around the Arctic and all around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this uh, prob- probably Nikos uh, has have more to to say on uh, what uh, communities would need from researchers, right? Because as as many times as I talked to community members who cares about theory <laughs> i think for, for them it's yeah it's very important if we can show that our research results can be useful then uh, that uh, there is some uh, something tangible currently with climate change it is important for them to to know wildfires behavior and to know for example what areas will be flooded what other hazards we should expect with uh, permafrost degradation and uh, that's how we think about our frozen commons project that we not only want to create this knowledge look uh, I heard criticism about the word frozen commons. It, it's not for local communities, but uh, it's yeah more fancy <laughs> kind of thing. But what is behind that we have uh, something valuable that we all should care about. We should all govern together and we need to find this um, common ground where we align our interests as scholars as community members, as indigenous communities. And especially in the Arctic, uh, we see that uh, ice, snow, and permafrost are really changing so fast and they will be, you know, uh, it will be very different in 10, 15 years, not talking about even longer terms. And it's very important now to to study it, to document, and to see what kind of consequences will be with uh, this uh, permafrost degradation, with wildfire, and with uh, other issues, with uh, rain on snow, for example. All all kinds of different issues. We just need to know what what to focus on based on uh, communities, uh, knowledge and concerns, and then to think how we, we should, what kind of knowledge we can create that would be relevant for, for local concerns, but also for uh, science in general. But I, I think in general, if uh, we have these bigger questions you know, from uh, community perspectives, they are already kind of related to questions for humanity. Uh, once during an Arctic Night conference, um, there uh, were a group of youth from uh, Pond Inlet um, there, and um, they were talking about things that they themselves noticed that they were interested in to know how 
um, like the the waste dump that was outside the community. How, how is that impacting groundwater? How is that uh, when the wind picks up and it it blows the trash around? How does that impact the environment around them? Also, like the sewerage treatment and things like that. How does it impact the communities around them? And it's questions that people didn't really think about, but when they actually said it, it was like actually that's really important we should actually do research on those topics it's really important so um it's quite interesting i'm just thinking um well uh before we run out of time um uh i was thinking out of jumping to the question on coming back to the fact that yes at the moment there is the conflict in ukraine and and the difficulties of working in russia but uh, could you give some advice to early career scientists that are maybe still based in Russia or outside about what they should be aware of when trying to navigate the current situation to ensure that the communities are protected and the in- indigenous collaborations as well are are protected so that they still exist in the future? Yeah, it is kind of a difficult question. Uh, I can give you a list of foreign agents, unfriendly countries, how many fines person would pay for uh, distributing uh, fakes uh, and uh, for for uh, protests uh, and uh, yeah, no, not only fines but also imprisonment. Uh, a lot of sad stories or what's uh, happening with protesters in Russia. So, yeah, it is very important. I I think it is still, despite all all of that, it's still important to keep connections with uh, Russian colleagues, with your collaborators, and uh, just to uh, try try to do not put them in any position where the identities could be Compromised or, or compromised. revealed. Yeah, yes, of course. And uh, yeah, just keep in mind that everything can be uh, listened to, uh, that you do not discuss uh, some topics. Um, well, it's it's interesting because Norway, Norway is taking over the Arctic Council very shortly, the, the chairmanship, and they've indicated that they, you know, they don't see Russia leaving the Arctic Council. They don't see uh, they, they're trying to seemingly position themselves for Russia to be well, you know, in at least some capacity, whether it's the scientific, I think mostly in the scientific sense that they, they want to reestablish some degree of cooperation, um, and hopefully that would also involve RIPON or or other um, indigenous representative groups, and that they would have the same kind of representation in the Arctic Council. But do you what what do you think about that? I guess do you, do you think that uh, the Arctic Council is going to continue to be a a good forum, like even in the midst of conflict, is can that kind of peaceful cooperation dimension of the Arctic Council be preserved? moving forward i just i think that we we just need to remember that we have only one planet and uh, very soon uh, there will be changes that it will be impossible to to mitigate and that uh, it's just a matter of time when it's uh, this climate change will be exacerbated and uh, this uh, yeah, well, resources will be depleted. And, uh, there are some very urgent issues where we just cannot uh, wait. Yeah. I would be happy if the war uh, ended tomorrow. Absolutely. But yeah, we all know that it, we, we can't, unfortunately, we cannot uh, make any uh, kind of influence uh, in our position right now so yes that's why i think it's important to keep any kinds of cooperation and if arctic council is ready to do that uh, i think it's better than nothing 
But from another side, we know that Russia is still participating in, at these international conferences, COP28, for example, and there probably will be somebody. Uh-huh. There is a person in because, uh, yeah, IPCC, studies of permafrost or studies of his uh, uh, expertise. So some collaboration still exists and uh, we just need to make sure that when we are discussing the questions that are important for the whole humanity, that we do it in the way that communities will not be. No, from another side, uh, it's yeah, it's a very difficult question, but uh, everybody can read uh, open sources and to read what what interests exist in Russia and in other countries and make sure that we use right information. And we are scholars, you are scholars, and you can do fact check and make sure that the information that is provided by official sources is reliable or use mm-hmm. other sources that may be True. more reliable. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a that's an excellent piece of evidence you know, or of uh, advice to to kind of start wrapping us up. Just because um, it is still important, I think, to you know the 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 sentiments in the West. You know the kind the West, if we're going to call it that, um, are you know it's extending to you know to to the cult you know culture in Russia. It's extending to music. It's extending and then undoubtedly to the um, legitimacy of science and to the the value of what Russian science has contributed to the world and to Arctic science. And so there's still a really urgent need to cite, reference, read what is coming out of Russia, even under this political climate, but to do it in a way that is responsible and is not, um, you know, kind of... uh, yeah, making use of, of what might be junk science or what might be biased science in, in some way. Yeah. No, and especially now, you know, we have all kinds of uh, remote sensing, all kinds of open source data that is available and uh, just to try to use different sources to, to make sure that uh, the information that is provided will be relevant and reliable. And, uh, yeah, we have colleagues and uh, we have diasporas uh, who have very strong connections with their homelands and uh, probably they know better how to navigate these difficult conditions, situations to to make sure that uh, the informants are protected uh, so just uh, try to to yeah use different sources and, uh, i know that it's yeah, yeah. We, we kind of it like also information work but uh i hope that we are just as a, as scholars we think not only from positions of our countries but from position of the whole of humanity for the whole uh, scholarly community when we discuss our uh, topics and issues and everything. Definitely. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and maybe before I... Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention this. I think it's important. Go for it. Uh, that I was... Um, uh, I had an opportunity to serve in the advisory committee of Office of Poor Programs of NSF. And they have regular meetings uh, twice a year. And uh, I think it's important for early career scholars to participate in those meetings. I know it may be boring. It's half of time will be maybe uh, you could think that you could use it better. (laughs) But just to be active researchers, to... Uh, provide your uh, feedback on the policy of NSF and what kinds of research, what kinds of, uh, you know, directions they want to develop. It's important. I think it's uh, 
very valuable. Yes, we always talk about how we should be active citizens, but then uh, this advisory committee for me was such a great experience to understand that it is uh, kind of one of the areas where more scores involvement would be very beneficial. No, I think that's actually a really good piece of advice because, um, you know, it's like the the nuts and bolts of how science gets done and how it gets funded and and what broad strategies there are. So, yeah, for early career scholars to actually learn what what that that level of decision making looks like um, is extremely important. And yeah, I actually I need to do more of that. Yeah. And it wouldn't be boring to me because I sit in on, on board of fish meetings and stuff like that, <laughs> which are long and hard. No, yeah. I think you as uh, yeah, younger researchers, you are more, more, maybe more involved in this active uh, kind of citizen science and uh, activist science than my generation. But I think it's always kind of there are some areas where it could be even more promoted. So, well, yeah, you you you've paved the way in many ways, and we're you know, uh, uh, Vera, we we really uh, are grateful for you being here and for the research that you do and uh, the leadership that you provide in the U.S. and on a on a global level in Arctic research. And thank you so much for for joining us for this podcast and giving your insights and your your experiences it's uh it's opened up a whole new world for me um as uh, it's not necessarily my field of study but it's definitely it's uh it's opened up my mind to what science is like in the siberian arctic thank you Uh, thanks a lot for listening to this uh, Polar Times episode and thanks to Inge and Nicolas for proposing this really interesting and insightful guest. If you want to leave us some stars on uh, your favorite podcast application, please do. And uh, don't hesitate to contact Apex on Instagram or Twitter if you have any uh, questions. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.